This is Conducting Business, WQXR's podcast about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. In 1955, Canadian piano prodigy Glenn Gould made a recording of Bach's Goldberg variations that made him world famous. But Gould became just as famous for his eccentricities, humming along while he played, wearing gloves and overcoat in the summer, and quitting the concert circuit at the height of his career. It is now the 80th anniversary of Gould's birth, and he continues to provoke fascination with tribute albums, books, DVDs, even a Glenn Gould conference at the University of Toronto. All this raises bigger questions of Gould's impact on the music industry and how artists' legacies are promoted, or maybe even exploited, after they're gone. Joining us to discuss this are three experts. David Patrick Stearns, classical music critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer and a writer for WQXR's Opravore blog. Brian Levine, executive director of the Glenn Gould Foundation. And Colin Etock, author of the new book, Remembering Glenn Gould. Both Brian and Colin are on the phone from Toronto, where they've even escaped from the Glenn Gould Conference. Just barely. (laughs) Brian, I'm going to start with you. You run a foundation that promotes the legacy of Glenn Gould, who died right after his 50th birthday in 1982. So why all the attention for his 80th? Well, I think it's because Gould does, as you say, continue to fascinate, and he remains a... um, startlingly contemporary figure. His uh, key recordings have never been out of the catalog. The 55 Goldberg Variations, by accounts that I've heard, is the top-selling solo classical um, album of all time. And there is something unique in the music. There's something unique in the persona. And I think there's a great deal that's unique about the ideas um, that stand behind his music making. And all of these things, I think, continue to challenge and provoke us to this day. Has the public's attitude to Glenn Gould or awareness of him changed over the years? I think that it's mellowed a bit. I, I believe that in his, particularly the early days of his career, his mannerisms and the sort of the external paraphernalia of his performance was a lot more vexatious to people than we find it now. I think that there's been an acceptance that whether you regard them as affectations that he put on just as a form of self-promotion or, as I rather tend to think, um, a natural outflowing of the particular inwardness of his uh, and the the lack of self-consciousness of his playing, um, although he was very self-conscious about about his persona, I think that we accept these things now as just, you know, part and parcel of the whole artistic being that he was. Well, I think that one of the reasons that he continues to fascinate the public is that, you know, they just can't quite figure him out. There are just so many different factors to him. And, you know, when people say that they like Glenn Gould, the the question is, which one? The young one, the old one, the live, the studio, before he gave up giving concerts, after? Because he... He was very, very different in all those periods. Uh, I think just the comparison between his two Goldberg variations recordings is, you know, quite proof of that. Well, you called, in fact, the 1955 Goldberg recording that we opened with overrated. Why did you say that? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because I prefer the 1957 live Goldbergs from uh, Salzburg. (laughs) Seriously. Well, and also you wrote an article in 2003 that complained that 
Glenn Gould had gone from being a classical music bad boy to a kissed-by-God oracle. Those were your words. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, I did <laughs> well, write that, I didn't like I? That. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, w- I was talking to Tim Page um, several years ago, and we were thinking, you know, I mean, there's this canonization of Glenn Gould that has gone on, and we were wondering, what would he think about that, you know? I think he would either be appalled or amused, I'm not sure, but I think that so many things like, say, you know, starting with the 32 films about Glenn Gould, kind of portrayed him as this holy fool, you know? And, I mean, he was an extremely original musician. He was changing constantly, you know. It it was pretty hard to keep up with him. And uh, even now, with all these live recordings coming out of him, you know, it's like, okay, we thought we knew him, but maybe we didn't. Well, speaking of knowing him, Colin, can I just ask you, because you just wrote a book, you interviewed 20 people who did know him. And when we ran a poll on our website, we asked listeners how they characterized Glenn Gould. Over half of them considered him a genius visionary, but another third said he was a bewildering and eccentric interpreter. Now, having interviewed all the people who knew him, where did most of them stand? Well, all of the people that I interviewed certainly admired the man, and all would have uh, used the words words like brilliant or genius to describe him. But certainly some of the people I spoke to also felt there was a, a sort of contrived quality about him, an eccentricity that was partly driven by his character, but also partly driven by a kind of willful desire to uh, portray himself that way to the world. Well, Brian, as the head of the Glenn Gould Foundation, what's your reaction? I have to say that um, I think that there was a certain amount of reveling in being a bad boy. Um, uh, There's a quote by by John Adams that I particularly like, where he says, there doesn't seem to be anyone around these days with the ability to give the dreary, tedious world of classical music the kick in the ass that Glenn Gould did. And I think that he really enjoyed doing that and sometimes liked being willful, particularly in things like his Mozart performances. Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) But... It's surprising how many people I know who actually normally don't like Mozart who love Gould's Mozart because it is so totally different and so totally perverse. All the reading and talking with people that that I know who have met Gould, things like the humming, uh, for example, and the you know the low piano churn all that those were things that he just really did um, because he needed to do it in order to to make music the way he wanted to. So I don't think that those were artificial contrivances. On the other hand, I think uh, it's been noted that he was enough aware of what it uh, took to be successful that once he realized that those were objects of fascination, that he was perfectly happy to go along with them and let people be fascinated by them because it got them to buy his records and it enabled him to make the kind of career that he needed to make. Well, you know, personally, I find that he tends to interrogate the composers that he performs and you know sometimes these composers they they absolutely bloom and i mean if this shows you how eccentric i might be one of my favorite recordings of his is his famous live brahms first piano concerto with leonard bernstein i think that there are many wonderful things that come out of that performance even though it was extremely controversial at the time on the other hand i feel like he was asking mozart the wrong questions you know and maybe doing so intentionally I mean, wasn't he on record as not liking Mozart? 
I think he, yeah, yes, he, he said that um, the tragedy of Mozart was not that he died too young, but that he died too late. Well, certainly, a lot of people who disagree. We should first mention, or we should mention that the the famous Brahms that you allude to was when he performed with the New York Philharmonic with Leonard Bernstein conducting and. Bernstein apologized to the audience or sort of made a statement beforehand saying that they were totally at odds with the tempo on this piece because Gould wanted to play it so slowly. And And then some years later, Bernstein went back to it, and he was slower. He was even slower than Gould. Funny how that happens. Isn't that interesting? There are recordings of his that I think are extremely individual and different, but which I think contains some absolutely sublime music-making. And one of my favorites I might mention is um, his Emperor Concerto with Stokowski. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah, which contains one of the most absolutely sublime slow movements, also very, very slow, and also with many individual touches that other pianists would probably never want to emulate. But it's magical, and it really takes you into a different world. Well, which well certainly uh, one of the things that, that Gould uh, contended and, and said on several occasions was that he didn't see any reason, uh, any justification for recording a work unless an artist had something distinctive interpretively to bring to the performance. And uh, frequently he walked the walk that way as well as talking the talk. Well, speaking of that, I, I would like to get, in fact, beyond the music to Glenn Gould and the recording studio. There was a percentage of the people who answered our poll who said that he was a technological innovator. And I think that's something that should be addressed because he was, well, in some people's minds, way ahead of his time, in many people's minds. Well, that is true. But some of the things that he did in the recording studio, there's his infamous disc of Sibelius piano music. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Where he, you know, had the various, you know, registers of the keyboard coming out of different speakers and bouncing off of each other and things of that sort. I personally think that when he gave up concertizing and took to the recording studio, I think that's where he went wrong. Because though he still collaborated with musicians, there's this disc coming out of vault recordings that he made of Richard Strauss songs with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, of all people. Apparently they did not get along. But he ceased to collaborate with people like Leopold Stokowski and Leonard Bernstein and Herbert von Karajan. And I think that, you know, this made his music-making rather, what, insular? Would that be a good word? Well, Brian, what do you have to say to Glenn Gould's legacy? Well, I actually tend to take exactly the opposite view. I mean, um, I tend to believe that Gould's decision to leave the concert stage started off more from his personal emotional needs. He found the concert life extremely, extremely uncongenial, and it was basically making an an emotional wreck of him. But hand-in-hand with that was his nut discovery, because he'd started doing broadcasting and recording really very early, 1949, 1950, when he was just a lad. But the potential that it offered to be more in the position of, let's say, someone who writes a book and can edit it, rather than someone who, let's say, gives a live uh, a live play performance and can't go back uh, and, and fix anything that they got wrong. I think he found that extremely re- rewarding. 
very creative, and it also gave birth to a whole series of ideas. For example, the ability of an artist being able to communicate directly one-to-one with the audience rather than, you know, a one-to-many relationship, uh, which you do in the concert hall. He also felt that his own playing was suffering because he was being drawn into a world of big gestures designed to reach the back row of, uh, of a large auditorium. And I think that there is actually an intimacy and, and inwardness that comes in, um, in his best recordings. Um, and I think that, that actually from my uh, conversations with people who, who did collaborate with him, a lot of his CBC colleagues, a lot of musicians who are still alive working in Toronto, I actually in a previous life um, uh, was a record producer, worked with Jamie Laredo, and he, they all described the relationship as extremely open and collaborative. I can corroborate what Brian has just said about Jamie Laredo. Jamie Laredo was very pleased to work with him. The uh, reputation that he acquired of being a um, uncooperative collaborator, I think it was more an extrapolation. People assumed that someone like Glenn Gould would be uh, a poor collaborator, but I, I don't think it was uh, necessarily true. Was he really sort of the first do-it-yourself classical musician of modern times, and did that sort of pave the way for... He was innovative and revolutionary within the context of classical music, but I think that to be absolutely objective, you know, the things that he was bringing into the classical sphere were being done quite freely already in popular music, you know, overdubbing and editing and, you know, things of that kind, and, and probably more adventurously than he did. It's just that classical music has a tendency to be so conservative that it was considered to be a real eyebrow raiser to be doing these things. I think what's more interesting was um, his sort of anticipation of the possibilities that this kind of new technological brave new world would open. For example, he said, you know, if you want to construct your own Brahms Fourth Symphony by taking, you know, a Klemperer first movement, a Toscanini second, a Carrion third, and, you know, a Stokowski fourth, more power to you, because ultimately the world of technology was opening up uh, an entirely new realm of liberation for the listener and giving the listener the opportunity to be in a much more creatively empowered role Um, He actually talked in the 1960s about the idea of listeners not being at the mercy of record producers and star artists and uh, being able to buy what he described as a box of takes, which they would be able to assemble in the future with uh, simple equipment that anyone could afford and create the performance that they wanted to hear. And, of course, that's the essence of the um, mixed culture that we have today. Welcome to the land of bonus cuts. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure that he approached this with a very specific artistic vision. Um, However, I think that particularly in the age of digital editing, you know, it has been found that sometimes the more you work on a performance, the more you perfect it in the studio, inexplicably, the more bland it becomes. One should love one's mistakes on a certain level. But surely you wouldn't uh, accuse Gould of uh, creating blandness in the No, studio. no, but uh, no, absolutely not. But it could be that, you know, people who tried to follow in his footsteps could not. I think that there are so many aspects of him that were so singular that, you know, anybody who tries to follow in his footsteps is doing so at a great deal of peril. It's interesting that so many of the pianists who say that they're influenced by him, you know, uh, actually don't play like him. So. Nor do I think they should. I mean, I think that it's really 
dangerous when a powerful personality comes along and people try to emulate that personality too closely. And I think that if Gould had one message, it really was be yourself and, and feel free to take chances artistically. And we are, and I think it's one of the great self-defeating curses of classical music, is that we are become so enamored of the tradition and also so tyrannized by the orthodoxy that there is a fear among many artists to depart from the usual approach to performance that has been laid down over time. And I would agree it, with that. And Gould certainly was not only fearless, but unabashed. And, you know, I mean, for me, one of his most, I won't say unforgivable, but difficult recordings was um, of the Appassionata Sonata, which he considered to be a terrible piece. And his recording, I think, really was his attempt to lay out in textbook terms why it was so bad by making it sound as bad as possible. <laughs> but the point is, you know, he did it with complete and utter conviction and complete disregard of the fact that he was going to get raked over the coals by the critics. He just didn't care. If you want to go back to the incident with the New York Philharmonic, Glenn Gould was disappointed by Leonard Bernstein's disclaimer and fairly outraged by um, Harold C. Schoenberg's review of the event in the New York Times. So he, uh, he suffered for his art in that way, shall we say, but it didn't discourage him. Since the late 90s, people have put forth the idea that Glenn Gould was autistic with undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome. Brian, do you think an actual diagnosis would have helped or hindered his career? Well, first of all, it's it's questionable. I mean, I, I, I've spoken with Tim Page, and as you know, Tim has um, written a, a really wonderful and illuminating book about his own experiences as, a, as an Asperger's sufferer, and he felt uh, an immediate kinship to Glenn, which he's interpreted as, as Glenn also having Asperger's. Sometimes these unique qualities, whether they are medical or diagnosable, are also integral to an artist's distinctive ability to make their contributions. I don't think that one way or another it um, really would have either helped or hindered. David, do you think maybe Gould could become an inspiration for people with Asperger's syndrome? Well, we don't really know about that, actually, do we? I mean, uh, well, and you Tim know, Page is not the only one who has put forth this. And no, we don't yeah, know. Yeah, but, but if it were provable from beyond the grave, well, I actually think that so many artists their their work is an outgrowth of dealing with some sort of deficit that they perceive consciously or unconsciously within themselves. It is possible that he would not devote himself as selflessly as he did if he didn't feel somewhat maladjusted, if he did not feel like you know, a, a non-mainstream person. It takes a lot of, well, dedication is too weak of a word, but it takes something above and beyond whatever to be an artist on that level and to be an artist of his originality. You know, I mean, whether I like his performances or not, I have to say that they are definitely original. And the kind of what looks like courage is actually, you know, this is my only option because this is who I am and, you know, I do not have the option to live in a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 children. I am not that person. Yeah. Colin, some people think that Gould's 
overuse of prescription drugs may have undermined his health and may have also contributed to all of this. Did yes, he it, ever- it was a little bit scary, especially as he, he would sometimes keep um, prescription drugs past their due date and uh, perhaps continue to take them um, beyond the time they should be administered. Did he ever get proper medical help? How did he get access to all of <laughs> well, these? Well, he got too much rather than too little medical help. Uh, he had several doctors uh, in Toronto who were not always aware of each other's existence and weren't uh, aware that Gould was seeking multiple treatments for the same uh, for the same issues. So that was one of the ways he acquired um, so many prescription drugs because he was being simultaneously um, prescribed by uh, several different physicians. To me, that issue may be the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, I have often wondered about that. There is a video that he made uh, in the studio of playing the Beethoven Emperor Concerto with the Toronto Symphony, and he was sort of a last-minute replacement. He apparently stayed up all, all night studying the piece and just ran through it lickety-split, and you just look at him and you think, what's he smoking, you know? Uh, not, not smoking, but, you know... Taking. Taking, <laughs> yeah. You just sort of look at him and you think, okay, there's there's something wrong here, and there are tales of all-night conversations that were one-sided, you know? That sounds like, you know, something's going on there. I, I have often felt that that is perhaps the missing piece of the puzzle and maybe um, one major reason why he died so young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin, uh, I read in your book that according to the will that he made, Glenn Gould's estate was split mostly between the Salvation Army and the Humane Society with a little bit of something for his father. So who gets the royalties from all of the stuff that's now reissued? Um, to this day, the, the Toronto Humane Society and the Salvation Army. So They've done very well by him. <laughs> I yep, guess they, they have. They've made many, many millions of dollars uh, thanks to his... There uh, are lots of happy cats and dogs uh, <laughs> because of Glenn Gould. So bringing it back now to the Gould anniversary, when you reissue all of these, do you run into a wall once all the recordings are out there and have been issued in as many formats as are available? What's left to do? You know, the, the bulk of his of his musical legacy has seen the light of day. Well, and speaking of which, to, yeah. have you folks seen that uh, West Hill Radio Archive box set that came out, what, about six months ago? Mm-hmm. That's a treasure trove. We can't get it in this country. I what mean, is it? It's a box set of live performances, very, very interesting ones. I prefer Glenn Gould Live myself. And uh, it, it's available in Canada, but because of copyright issues, it's not out in this country. Colin, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, one of the people that you interviewed, John Beckwith, said that he wished that they had not turned Gould into a sort of James Dean. And he complained a little about what he called the industry of mm-hmm. Gould. You, however, went and wrote another book about Glenn Gould for the occasion. And you got a little pushback on that from some of the people you interviewed. I did, and I wasn't surprised by it because I was already aware that there were some people who felt that way. But the um, the world's fascination with Lungul, I feel it um, it sort of feeds off itself, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way either. As long as his uh, recordings um, are selling and and uh, being listened to and, and broadcast, people will want to know uh, more about this remarkable pianist because 
it is um, typical for uh, recording artists in the classical music world to go into a pretty steep decline following their death, and Gould has not done that. So as long as people are interested, people will also want to explore his life, his ideas, his personality. And as I say, the two will reinforce each other, and I think that's fine. I think it's healthy. It's exceptional, uh, but exceptional in a good way. Thank you all for a great discussion. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Conducting Business. We've been joined by music critic David Patrick Stearns, Brian Levine from the Glenn Gould Foundation, and author Colin Etock. Brian Wise is our producer, and Jason Isaac was our engineer. You can subscribe to the Conducting Business podcast on iTunes. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.